Titus chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding of your word, challenge our hearts. Lord, I pray that we'd be receptive to your word. Lord, the word is a mirror that shows us where we are, who we are. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the grace that we not be forgetful here, but obedient to what you show us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I was at a meeting this last week, week ago, Friday actually, and uh, for the Southern Baptists, somehow they put up with me, and um, they're very concerned because they don't have enough money to do all the things that they'd like to do, and they think the problem is money, and I don't think it is. And uh, the meeting we had before, uh, one of the fellas in the convention said that, uh, I guess they did the study, and baptisms and decisions for Christ rose until the year 2000 in the Southern Baptist Convention. And from the year 2000 to the present time, it has fallen to the levels of 1847, I believe, when they started the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, the fellow that shared that history with us said the answer was, we need to give more money. Well, that sounded too much like the government to me. You got a problem, throw money at it. Get a new method. You know what God's method is? God's method is people sharing the gospel with people they know. It's about relationships. It's about having a life that's believable. So that when you share the gospel, people go, yeah, I, I, I see that. God changed your life. See, grace changes everything. I don't know if you read um, Oswald Chambers, but... Chris and I read him this morning. It was very good. It said, if we are to be disciples of Jesus, then we must be made disciples supernaturally. I have chosen you, the Bible says. That is the way the grace of God begins. It is a constraint we cannot get away from. We cannot disobey it, but we cannot generate it. The drawing is done by the supernatural grace of God, and we can never trace where his work begins. Our Lord's making of a disciple is supernatural. He does not build on any natural capacity at all. God does not ask us to do the things that are easy to us naturally. He only asks us to do the things that we are perfectly fitted to do by his grace. And the cross will come along that line always. It's by grace. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, when he's talking about the family that it is totally contrary, not politically correct, to culture today. We say, well, hold it. That's, that's you know, God to expect to do that today. Depends on if you want God's blessing in your life. Do you want God's order in your life? God has created the families, the first institution he established. And what God loves is when a husband and lo- wife love one another, and they love their children, and there is that, that place of safety in this culture that children love to come and be in. I hope that as you have a Christian home, that it is the favorite place in the neighborhood for all the other kids to gather. You say, well, that makes more mess. That's right, but they're drawn there because of the love they see. Satan hates everything God established. He even hates unbelievers. 
because God created them, and Satan hates the home, and he wants to destroy it. Now, we read in the, in the, in the, we, as we get, began our service that when the grace of God appeared, it teaches us. Nobody knows by your flesh, just by nature, how to have a good home or family. It comes from obedience, submitting ourselves to the will of God. Now, if you get a chance to go to Israel, one of the things that Dr. Bookman will explain to you is how God in his providence made that whole nation, not to be a missionary nation, but be a nation that the whole world came by to hear the good news. And the way God designed even the geography he put his people in was there's this road that goes by, this fertile crescent comes down around the edge of Israel along the sea and continues on down to Egypt. And then there's this rough terrain where the people of Israel lived that protected them and their culture so they could raise their families to honor the Lord. God laid down in the Old Testament what he expected. He gave people laws. The problem is you can't honor God by laws. What he told these, uh, what, what uh, Paul told Titus in the first chapter was this church is planted by God in a dark culture. The Cretans are slow bellies, they're lazy, and they're liars. So the Cretans that you choose that have come to Christ to be leaders have to have a life that matches the message. They need to be above reproach. But it's not just leaders' opportunity to bring people to Christ. That's every believer's opportunity. Now, in our Christian culture, we've come to understand or we've come to, to desire to have things that are cool in order to share the gospel. So if we could just have a big event, we all love it a big event because, you know, we don't have to personally identify with anything. But if we could just have a, an event where they have really cool music and you can invite your friends, your unsafe friends and loved ones and neighbors to come, say it's really going to be cool. And so you have some cool music and then they bring some star in, some athletic uh, star, some movie star that, that has a testimony of believing Christ, and they'll say, well, I want to be like that. I want to hear that person. So they bring them in. It doesn't cost you anything. You never have to be embarrassed because it's so cool, and people come to Christ. Wouldn't that be neat? The problem is that's not God's plan. God's plan is for me and you to have a life that matches the gospel and share the gospel personally with people. I love uh, Dave Garrett. A long time ago, I think it was probably the first year of my ministry when I met him in 1984, there was a gathering of pastors here and they're talking about having a big event. And old Dave Garrett said, well, fellas, let me tell you something. You can get the big shot in here and what'll happen is all the Christians will show up. It'll be really cool. But if you want to see Laramie come to Christ, your people have to be willing to share the gospel with their friends and neighbors. Simple, not easy. And God says the very simple plan is for the family of God, the church, to live a life that makes the gospel believable. Because they not only see you, they see the people in the church, but they see your family. That's God's plan. Simply living the gospel out. Now, I wish it was just natural that you could just 
be a mom or a dad. But you know, there's sin, isn't there? And it's a challenge. It's the culture we live in. The culture puts pressure on your family to, for mom to make sure she leaves her mark. And so nowadays, you know, moms can't just be moms. They all still have to be athletes and they have to be super at this and that. And, and the whole idea of the world is don't lose yourself and your family. Don't lose your identity. Your, your identity. Same thing for dads. You got to have your life, dad's life. And then the kids, they've all got to be involved in this stuff because we want them to be pro athletes or pro something and make a lot of money. So we've got a busy running the kids all over the place. There's really no time to sit around for supper around the table and talk about what happened in life and then open the word of God with our children. Just no time because the pressures of the world. Now the Bible says in Romans 12 too, don't let the world push you into its mold. It has a mold that'll be acceptable for Christians that they would love Christians to fit into. The world says, no, no, no. God's word says, no, don't, don't let the world force you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might find out what is a good, acceptable, the perfect will of God for your life. It's in the word of God. It means that you're going to have a life of decisions as a disciple of Jesus Christ. See, disciple in the Greek is just methetes. It means learner. In all of our lives, as we follow Christ, there doesn't come to a place in your life where all of a sudden you've learned it all, and you don't need to trust the Lord. You need to follow because you've learned it all. No, no, no. We're always a learner until we get to glory. We're learning. And you know what? We get to glory. I think we'll learn some more. But he gives us instruction, and he says there in verse 1, Timothy, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Sound just means healthy, balanced. Last week we heard that amazing instruction from Dr. Bookman on why it's important to study the Old Testament. A balance. And remember what he told us? If you don't study the Old Testament, it's easy to get flippant about the relationship we have with Christ now because you don't understand the holy God of the Old Testament. You understand what the Old Testament saint had to go through with all of the offerings and the continual uh, trying to get forgiveness from sin. But when you understand that, the holy God, that he's not changed, but he's provided this great grace, it gives you that balanced opportunity to come with a proper respect to a holy God who loves you and gave himself for you. Now see, even good doctrine you can go to seed on. A fellow came up to me after that service and, and instructed me that he'd never been here before, visited one time, but instructed us that we need to concentrate more in the New Testament and that it's really good if we understood about all these things that are going on today. So he, wherever he was from, his pastor had kind of gone to seed on eschatology. I didn't necessarily disagree with his doctrine, but the point is, did you listen? Bookman was trying to challenge about having a balance with the whole of Scripture. But to come up and say, no, I think this church, I'm like, first of all, who are you? I would never do that to another church. I may not agree with them, but I'm going to walk in, I'm going to leave. But to walk in and say, oh, by the way, I think you have too much on the Old Testament. It's like, did you even listen? Did you even listen to what's going on? He says, Timothy, you need to teach the whole counsel of God so there's a balance. See, if every message was about the family, we could begin to worship the family and we'd get off kilter there. Eschatology, get off there. 
the challenge that always the church has to deal with is the same challenge you talked about in the first chapter, and that's the challenge of license on one hand and legalism on the other, isn't it? You can get real legalistic about the family, and you'll discourage everyone. Now, when we go to this instruction, I want you to understand, when I'm talking to young women, when God's talking to young women, he's not talking to the men to straighten the young women out. That's for the women. And when he's talking to the men, that's not for you to elbow your husband. That's for him. God has not given us hammers to beat each other up with, but only to be an encouragement. And in our own lives, be an inspiration that others would want to walk like Christ also. So he begins with the old men. And he says, older men, probably 60 and older, older men are be temperate. That means clear thinking, not mixed with wine, not inebriated, dignified, there's a word, dignified. Honorable. Alfred Eidersheim, in his work on Jewish culture, he's an old Jewish uh, Christian, he was with the Lord for many years. I think it was the 1800s he ministered. He was a theologian. He came to Christ and he talked about culture. And he said in Leviticus 19.32, it says, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man. And it was strictly enjoined that proper outward marks of respect should be shown to old age such as to rise up in the presence of older men, not to occupy their seats, to answer them modestly, to assign them the uppermost places at feasts. But not only should we offer respect, that used to be a part of culture, didn't it? Used to be. Older person would get on the bus, you stand up, give them your chair. A woman gets on the bus, you stand up, give them your chair. But those are gone. Well, it's not done that way anymore. It doesn't matter. In God's culture, he still wants us like that. Now, every old man or old woman is not necessarily honorable. doesn't matter. You still give them honor. It's about your relationship with God, not about how they carry that out. But he said in the church, just because a person's old doesn't make them honorable. But that's God's goal. That's the goal Jesus has for every man that will walk with God his whole life. Is come to that place that they have a dignity and a bearing so that when you run into problems as, an, as, as a young person, you say, I want to go talk to Mr. So-and-so. Not just the pastor. Obviously, the pastor is supposed to be there. But other men, that you've seen them go through difficulties. You've seen them make decisions of faith. Doesn't mean they're no fun. People talked about the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, and, and he had an amazing sense of humor. And he talked about one time that uh, he said something, and, and the whole church, they couldn't hardly get control. The whole church, that whole congregation was laughing and laughing, and people criticized him for that. He said, Oh, brother, if you only knew how much I held back. Dignity doesn't mean that we don't have a sense of humor. I think the Lord Jesus himself had an amazing sense of humor. But when it came to things of life, they were trustworthy. They were an example. Dads, it's easy for us to talk about demanding respect and having our wife submit because the Bible says so, right? 
But you know, leadership is not just the responsibility to lead, provide, protect, but I think in that example also is the responsibility that you have to inspire, to be an inspiration to walk with God. Not perfect. You know, dads are perfect. How many times do I have to get down in front of my little boys and say, okay, dad was wrong. That was sin. I accused you of something that wasn't true. Will you forgive me? Now, on the front side, that might seem like, oh, well, you know, then they'll see that you're not trustworthy. No, they'll see that dad is a sinner too. And he needs God's grace and God's help in his life. And that he needs to be humble in order to be, in a, to, to be a leader. That inspiration part, that's a tough one, isn't it? Do you desire to be an inspiration to your children, to your wife, so they also want to walk with God? You encourage them. That's what it says the older man is supposed to be. That he's dignified. That he's sober. That he's wise. He's prudent. He's self-control. And in his life, there is soundness with his love, his faith, and his ability to endure trials. And you want to go to him because you know what he's been through, or you've heard his testimony, and you say, how did you get through that? Or maybe you're going through that kind of trial, and you go to him because you know he's going to give you the word and say, well, listen, the word of God says this, and I know it seems impossible, but you trust God. But not only the older men, but he says the older women. And it seems here that older Christian women have this choice. You can choose grace, or you can choose bitterness. Because he says here, older women the same are to be reverent. That's different than dignified, but we understand. It's about the same thing, isn't it? Reverent. There's a spirit of seriousness when it comes to the things of God. Not just known for being silly or goofy like some old men, but there's a weight Older women here to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips. How come we get gossipy? Because we want to let people know we know about everything. And the world honors that. Somebody just cut somebody to shreds. Well, I told her. I let him know. You don't, and, well, see, that's what the world honors, but God doesn't honor that. The Bible says about the godly woman in Proverbs 31 that the law, the law of kindness is always on her lips. Even when people don't treat her that way, she can rest in the grace of God and return grace for meanness. And there's a lot of meanness in the world. A lot of meanness. A lot of people trying to get even. And it says she's not addicted to wine. You don't have much of a teaching platform if you're a Christian drunk as a woman, right? We understand that. Maybe he was saying that because that's the only kind of medicine they had and it was easy when people got in pain just to not trust the Lord and pretty soon they're hooked on alcohol like people today get hooked on drugs. But he said, you need to be the kind of person that when you teach good things, it's believable. So when a young woman comes to you and asks you how to love 
her husband and how to love her children. You have some scripture. You have some walk with God to share with them that's believable because they see it in your life. They may encourage the young women. I love that the word there in the Greek is just husband lover. And then the word for loving children is children lover. Is that what you're known for, young ladies? See, the world says, again, you need to be known for this or that or the other thing. And the Bible says, no, what Jesus wants is you're known because you love your home. That's the priority. He's not saying you can't work outside of it. When you look at Proverbs 31... Here's a woman that she's buying fields and making sure they get planted. She's got a harvest. She's farming. She's got a textile business. And yet in all of that, the center is her home. The problem is today, we've just kind of allowed that Christians in in American culture, we've got to have things. In order to have things, we should have two incomes. In order to have two incomes, everybody's got to work because we've got to have these things. And so, as soon as we have children, make sure we get them in daycare, get them off, let somebody else raise them. And you know, I'm not saying that just because it's wrong, but you know what, moms? You're missing out on the greatest joy in life, watching those little ones grow up. And I want to tell you something, they grow so fast, so fast. I remember I was coaching football, and uh, Benjamin was in, seventh or eighth grade, and I was thinking, ah, oh, it's going to be so long until he's finally up here playing at the high school. He's been out of high school 20 years. His kids are as old as he was when I was thinking that. I don't know where it went. And you know what? It's not the same. As much as I love my grandkids, it's not the same opportunity. It's not the same influence as when your children are right there. They're so, so precious. And I realize that some of you moms may be single moms. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. In fact, Sam challenged our, our elders recently. We had a young woman that came to Christ. She'd come from a Christian home, but she'd gone astray, and she had a baby, and husband or the boyfriend didn't want to marry her. And so he brought the elders and said, listen, here's a woman, and if she's willing to follow Christ, are we willing to uh, stand behind her and take care of her until those babies are raised? And the elders said yes, but her Christian daddy said no. I want to do that. So precious. God loves children. And what he's done is he's given children, it says in Proverbs, that they, they just love their dads. The glory of children is their fathers. And he gives those little lives. Paul said, listen, Eve first chose sin, right? She was deceived. That's a shame. For the perfect woman, the first one born, was deceived by Satan. But the Bible says the reputation of women is saved in childbearing. It doesn't mean you get, you get to go to heaven because you had babies. What he means there is the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. They're growing so fast, you need to take every opportunity, moms. It's such precious time to pour into those little ones. And dads... It's a great joy to provide in such a way, to lead in such a way that you free mom up to pour a whole life into those little ones. That's what God says he's honored by. He's honored by that. 
that in all this chaos, you've come to Christ and God brings this order into your life and it's such a unique thing. The world just says, what is going on? And they might mock it. That's old-fashioned. They might mock you and say, oh, you're just a housewife. Say, no, I'm not married to a house. But I am a homemaker. It says there that older women would have that authority because of their relationship with Jesus. They'd have something to share that they could teach the younger women how to love their husbands, how to love their children, to be sensible. There's that word again, wise, to be pure, to be homemakers, workers at home, to be kind, subject to their own husbands. See, that's a hard thing. When you're working a job for somebody else and the boss wants you to work and do this and be so committed to the job, but your husband needs you to do something else, there's a problem there, isn't there? There's a problem. I was telling some of our fellows this week in Bible study that, you know, there were times I was working in dark, ugly factories, late at night, smelly, hard work, hot sometimes, just not something I wanted to do the rest of my life. But the bright thought I had in my heart when all of a sudden I didn't want to go to work, but there I was working this dungy, grungy job, long hours, I had this bright thought, I'm taking care of my family. That's from the Lord. And so I just want to tell you, families, if you have to make adjustments, I'm not telling you what to do. Don't come to me and say, now, Pastor, tell me what to do, because I won't do it. I don't want to separate you from your relationship with the Lord. You go ask God, God, what can we do to adjust so we have the time and we, we, don't, we don't lose this opportunity to pour into our children? Because God will lead you. The Bible says in James 1, if any man lack wisdom, you say, but you know, we got ourselves in this mess. We all this money. We just, we just have to neglect our children for a little bit longer so we can provide this lifestyle for them. You know what? They need more than the stuff. They need you. They need you. God will give you wisdom. Then he says, now you young men, you're to be wise. Now, young men are everybody in that culture from like 13 years old and up. Junior high guys are to be wise. Doesn't mean you can't have fun. You know, it's funny. Every time we hear, you know, every time I see Debbie, I, I just, she's a principal at the junior high. And that God has given you amazing grace to work at the junior high. The reason is, is our culture has promoted this myth of adolescence. That somehow in adolescence, that uh, children are supposed to be rebellious. And so parents just grow up thinking, oh, you're supposed to be rebellious. Before we had Hannah, people come along and find out we got five boys and three of them, I think, were teenagers at the same time, maybe four, I'm not sure. And they say, oh, poor guy. I'm like, not a problem. No, I'm not saying they were perfect. I'm not saying they weren't rebellious against God, but they never rebelled against us. Why? We just expected them not to. I didn't always do things right, but I never thought about rebelling against my dad because I love my dad so much. That just wasn't, are kids going to have problems? Sure, they're going to have problems. But the Bible says in Proverbs 22, 6, if you raise a child up in the way he should go when he's old, he'll keep going the same way. 
The problem comes when your life doesn't match what you're telling your kids to do, and they know it. That's what causes rebellion. Oh, do they have a sin nature? Of course they do. Of course they do. But you shouldn't expect because they hit adolescent years that they can't be wise and they can't make good decisions and they can't submit to authority. Because, Dad, you're there giving them inspiration, right? To follow the Lord. That you're not an independent agent, that you are a man under authority. And so he says, young men, I want you to act in wisdom. The Bible talks in the Old Testament about young people being grown up like grown-ups in young age. We have young people here like that. We do. There's, they have fun. They enjoy things. They're athletes. But there's a certain gravity about them because they've been inspired by their parents to say, you know what? The most important thing in my life is Jesus Christ, and I'm going to follow him. It's not control. You're not going to legalize or control kids. It's got to come from grace. But he says, young man, young men, I want you to be wise. And in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine and dignified. You know what's different about this church than a lot of churches? Sammy talked about it a couple weeks ago when he was preaching in Titus. Oh, there's the problem of millennials, you know. Ooh, we've got to identify. So, listen, let the pastor take his hair, comb it up in the middle like a cupid doll, wear big old baggy T-shirts and stupid-looking tennis shoes, and then maybe we'll reach the millennials. What kind of music do they like? But studies show what the millennials are looking for is truth. They just want the truth. They're tired of being just played at. But what are churches doing? The reason we've seen so many young men and young women head towards ministry from our church is because a long time ago, I began to realize what an exciting thing it was to follow the Lord. See, because by the time their hair falls out from their coopy haircuts, they're just going to be miserable. But when we see a young person, whether it's a junior high young man or a high school young man or a college young man come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, we hook them up in the harness. We say, listen, get in the harness with us. We're going to follow Jesus. We put around her and say, listen, this is serious stuff. It's now. It's time to serve Jesus now. While the world is full of Peter Pans that never grow up because daddy's providing everything for them. And they give them a car and then they pay for their school and they go off to school and they tell them, hey son, sow your wild oats because this is the last chance you get. This one stupid car commercial just drives me nuts. Well, it doesn't really drive me nuts. It's just stupid. I don't think about it that much. It's a car commercial where the kid goes off to school and he's got his little hot rod, you know, his two-seater. and That's who he is. And then he goes through college and he meets his girlfriend, eventually they got to get a little bigger car, and then they got to get a van because they got kids. But then in old age, he could be Peter Pan again and drive his little convertible because that's who you are. Really? Hmm. What about what God wants you to be, young man? Listen. Growing to be a man of God that provides for his family, that is a holy endeavor. That's a holy endeavor to provide for your family and be that example 
so that when you go to be with the Lord, your sons and your daughters will stand at your casket and say, that's the godliest man I ever knew. That's what you want to strive for. Not being cool, not being relevant, to be godly. To be godly. He says you ought to strive to be an example in everything. In everything. Sound in speech. There's one. Guys, right? Ephesians says, hey, don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth. I don't care what anybody else around you is doing. And that includes giving the refs a hard time. Amen and amen. Sometimes dads have a hard time with that. Have you ever thought about this? I challenged a dad one time years ago who just thought he had to work the refs at a basketball game. I said, and he was really big on sovereignty. I said, do you ever think maybe God's sovereign over refs? And he knew what I was talking about. Nope, God's not sovereign over refs. He, knew, he got my point. He was laughing. No, no, no. Ref makes a point. Young man, that's what it is. The ref might have got it wrong, but you don't have to get it wrong by reacting to it. Sound and speech which is beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you are our letter. Talk about an epistle. He said to the Corinthians, you're the letter. You're what people are reading about Jesus. You're what people understand about the gospel. Read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. John MacArthur says, whether they intend it to be or not, Christians are living letters of Christ, and sometimes they're the only testimony to the Lord and to his saving gospel the world has. Your life. Whether you're a young man, an older man, a young, a young woman with children, a single or an older woman, God has you an epistle. You're an ambassador. What are you saying about the gospel? Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your word is so clear and yet it's so high, Lord. We need your grace. We need the power and the desire to be found obedient because, Lord, more than anything, we want to hear from you. Well done. Not from the world. The world passes away. And all of its toys and all of its lusts and all of its treasures. But Lord, you abide forever. And we want to be pleasing to you. So Lord, work in our hearts. Teach us what that means for each one of us. To be a reflection of your grace in this culture. In our time and our place to be found faithful. And Lord, then we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.